Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Tonight, however, we are celebrating A Lucky Man by Jamel Brinkley. Jamel Brinkley was raised in the Bronx and Brooklyn, New York. He is a graduate of Columbia University and the Iowa Writers' Workshop. His work has received fellowships from Kimbilio Fiction and the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing. Following the reading, he'll be joined in conversation with Justin Torres. Justin is the author of the best-selling novel, We the Animals, and his honors include a Stegner Fellowship, a Radcliffe Institute Fellowship, and a Coleman Center Fellowship. Named one of the National Book Foundation's 2012 Five Under 35, he is Assistant Professor of English at UCLA. The Lucky Man has already received phenomenal praise. Charles Baxter describes Jamel's writing as like that of an angel, but he also knows how low human beings can sometimes go, despite their own best intentions. And Laila Lalami said, in vibrant yet restrained prose, Brinkley illuminates the longing for home which lurks in all of us. We're delighted to have him here tonight to read and discuss A Lucky Man. Please help me welcome Jamel Brinkley. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, <clears throat> before I start reading, I just want to thank Skylight for hosting this event. Um, I want to thank Justin for signing on. Um, and I want to thank you all for being here. Um, it's nice to see so many faces, so many familiar faces, um, a few faces I haven't seen in years. Um, so it's really wonderful for you to uh, come out and share this event with me. This is my first reading from this book, so I'm happy to share it with you. So I'm just going to read um, the first few pages of um, the th uh, an early story in the collection. It's called Juve, 1996. Um, you don't really need to know anything, but I'll just say something about uh, the title. Uh, Juve is, is a French word. It means um, daybreak or morning or dawn. Um, and culturally speaking, it refers to an outdoor party parade that happens um, in the Caribbean before carnival. Um, and in Brooklyn, there's a Juve that happens um, very early in the morning um, on Labor Day. Um, so it's an event that I've attended a few times and it was inspiring to me, so I wrote this story. Um, <clears throat> Juve, 1996. All I wanted was 15 bucks to go to the barber shop, but the thought of asking for it made me feel like punching a wall. It stressed me the hell out to ask Ma for anything, especially that summer when I decided to leave my boyhood behind. Pop would have known just what to say to calm me down or make me laugh. He wasn't around anymore, though, and he had stopped responding to my letters. So I went to our room to gather myself and practice my appeal. But of course, my little brother was there, too bizarre to ignore. Omari still had on his stupid rubber mask, a caricature of a great horned owl. A candy cigarette poked out at an angle from under its mottled beak. He was sitting at our desk, his butt swallowing the chair, and the clock radio played that boring white people music he liked. The oscillating fan rattled as it blew his newspaper clippings across the floor. Our room was strewn with these sheets of taped together headlines. As he paged through a neighbor's discarded daily news, a few caught my eye. Homeless youth under house arrest. Death named country's top killer. One armed boy applauds kindness of strangers. Together, they formed a patchwork calendar of the world's absurdity. A pathetic cloud of chalky smoke made of powdered sugar fell from the tip of Omari's cigarette. He'd found something he liked, a small but representative peculiarity. 
After testing his scissors on the air, he slowly snipped out a headline, making a show of it. September is the weirdest month, he said. The cigarette bobbed up and down under the beak as he spoke. September just started, dummy. I can already tell. He rose and stretched. At 11, he was nearly as tall as I was and broad like Pop, his body an unchiseled slab. The ear tufts of his mask were sharp enough to scratch you. He squeezed between the fan and our bunk bed and went to the window. Though the kitchen was on the other side of the apartment, we could hear sink water speeding through the pipes. We lived on the second floor of our building, not even high enough to see the top of the tree outside. Leaves from a bough pressed against the window. In a month, the view would be pretty. The panes tessellated in autumn shades, but it wasn't so nice now. When I was younger, right when Pop stopped coming around, I had nightmares about that tree breaking through the glass and reaching inside to grab me with its branches. I invited somebody over today, Omari sang. He gestured toward the window frame. Apparently, his newest imaginary friend was there. Her name's Angela. Who cares, I said. Omari turned his face toward me, twisting his neck as far as it would go. He unwrapped the paper from the cigarette and bent the hard gum until it broke. Reaching under the beak, which curved from the bridge of his nose, he slipped the pieces into his mouth. The black and amber eyes of his mask were large and round. But the freaky thing was Omari's eyes within those eyes. They stared directly at me now, two pennies stuck in a bucket. Where we lived, it didn't matter what a room was called. Ma would wash her hair in the kitchen, careful when she was done rinsing not to hit her head on the bottom of the cabinet. Sometimes she'd take phone calls in the bathroom or go in there to listen to the radio. When she was sick of me fighting with Omari, she'd take her dinner plate into her bedroom and go out to eat in peace on the fire escape. And now she was in the kitchen washing dishes. She used scalding hot water and never wore rubber gloves. Her hands were tough, long, and deeply lined. She was tough, with wiry, muscular arms. But this afternoon, as she cleaned, she also concealed the woman I knew by making herself look soft. Pink plastic rollers filled her hair. The smell of dabbed on Florida water rose from her skin. Mike, her new boyfriend, was coming over. Our dish rack rested on top of the refrigerator. There was no other place for it. And she handed me clean plates to stack there as I made my case. <clears throat> she leaned against the wall, seemingly exhausted, her long slip spotted with spray from the faucet. Money's tight, she said. You know that, tie. I told you to get a job this summer, but you hard-headed. A lazy boy does things twice. She shoved a fistful of wet utensils at my chest, but I just looked at them. I wanted to get my hair cut at the place Pop used to go. I was 17 and had never been to a barbershop. Homegrown afros and cornrows all my life. Maybe I wouldn't know what to say once I got there. Maybe I'd ask for the wrong thing or laugh at the wrong time, surrounded by all those clever men grooming each other's masculinity. Still, even if I embarrassed myself, I felt ready. I was almost a grown-up, not a boy. Plus, tomorrow was the West Indian Day Parade. This was the first time she was letting me go by myself. If you're not going to help, she said, get out the way and quit breathing all over me. Now we both stared at the forks and knives clutched in her hand. Ma, I need to look good. She shut off the water, jammed the utensils in the rack, and sidestepped by me. Been doing this boy's hair all his life, she muttered. I'll just cut it my damn self. She started banging around in the closet where we kept photo albums, boxes of discount toilet paper, and Pops' old winter coats. Next thing I knew, I was sitting in the living room with my shoulders draped in a towel. Here was the woman I knew, a force of nature, and I was totally helpless against her. Maybe, just maybe, some invisible force would steady Ma's hand, but who was I kidding? I had probably just stumbled again into that stagnant puddle of mud, belief. It was silly to think good things could possibly happen, but I had no choice. I described the style I wanted, picturing it as I spoke. A skin fade like Pops's, 
with the taper smooth and balanced, perfectly even all the way around, a timeless look. Mai wasn't even listening. She fumbled with the box, which had a white person cheesing on the front, proud of its bowl cut. You sure you don't want one of those high tops? She hovered her hand several inches above her head. That looks easy enough to do. I began to visit in the chair and made one more attempt. All the guys from school go to the barber shop, I told her. Trev's been going since before he could walk. Like I give a damn about some fool calls himself Trip, Ma said. <laughs> Trip. Trip ain't in this family. Trip ain't got to make the sacrifices we do. Sacrifices. That's right, for your brother and for you too. Don't you mean Mike? The heat rose quickly on my ear after she hit me, my cheeks stinging from her still moist hand. Though she yelled plenty at me, almost never at Omari, Ma rarely hit. Before she could scold me or hit me again, the intercom rang. Ma made her voice all sweet to call Omari and tell him to buzz Mike up. Then she started on my hair. Soon Mike walked in with a bottle of bright pink wine and his dopey grin. Ma got dopey in response and apologized for her appearance. Always look good to me, babe, Mike said. He kissed her on the cheek and plopped down on the couch, the coffee table sandwiched tightly between us. Omari sat, too, exactly where Pop used to relax with a beer and watch TV. You keep nicking me, I said. Mom was being rough with the clippers. Well, stop talking. Your whole head moves when you talk. I'm not the retard here. What did I tell you about saying retard? Mike grinned extra big as he took in the show. Ruth, he said. You're truly a woman of many talents. Ma nicked me again when she laughed and the clippers barked at every botched contact with my scalp. When she stood apart to take in her progress, they hummed in her hand. Mike said, boy, look like you could be on TV, right, Birdman? Omari's eyes shifted within the owls. He was smiling. Though shy around Mike, he didn't seem to mind him. This pissed me off even though he was too young to remember when there had been a real man around. When Mike offered to add some finishing touches, I hopped up and hair rained from my shoulders. <clears throat> I rushed to the mirror by the front door. I couldn't believe what I saw. On top, a crumbling, tall brick of hair, etched by a jagged line, a sharp, wandering border. There was no fade, no taper at all. My mouth got tight. Ready to curse loud and long, but Ma gave me a look that stopped me in my tracks. She said she wanted me to take Omari out for a while. For what, I said, because of him? Mike spread his arms, a gesture that meant, don't you dare talk to your mother that way, at the same time that it said, hey kid, leave me the hell out of it. <laughs> you got a problem with that, Ty, Ma said. I'm not the one bringing in problems. Do you pay the rent here? You pay any of the bills? I'm a grown woman and I work my ass off. I'll be damned if I can't have a friend over. Omari sang, everybody needs to have a friend. I told him to shut up. I need to take another shower, Ma said wearily. By the time I'm done, I want you boys out enjoying the day. Can we at least get some money, I asked. Ma went to the window and switched on the hulking air conditioner we rarely used. Be back in time to set the dinner table. Six o'clock, sharp. You'll be all right till then. When she shut herself in the bathroom, Mike flipped something at me. A quarter. In case you think about coming back early, he said, eyeing his bottle of wine. Go on and give us a call first. It was a hot, breezeless day, the air gauzy and wet. Though the sun was high in the sky, a lone and distant object, its energy came from everywhere at once. I wandered around the neighborhood, tugging down the bill of my Nick's cap. Omari trailed behind. Families walked from afternoon church service, sweating in their dress clothes. Fathers unbuttoned dark jackets from their paunches and slid down the knots of ties. One man with a bushy soul patch under his lip shouted for his little girl to stop running as she neared a corner. The weather was similar when I'd gone to the West Indian Day Parade with Pop. This was before he went away, when I was seven and Omari was a baby. I heard Pop come in early Labor Day morning and get ambushed. Ma was yelling because he had stayed out all night. 
They argued like crazy and woke Omari. Then Pop came into my room, bleary-eyed, and told me to get ready. When we left, Ma was still screaming, and Omari was crying in her arms. The parade was heat and laughter, flags and floats, music so loud I felt it was shaking me more and more awake. I had my first taste of jerked pork there. I even got to pick the exact pieces I wanted from the vendor's smoking grill. After we ate, Pop lifted me to see over the crowd on Eastern Parkway. The women dancing in the procession were nearly naked, but plumed, with sprays of brilliant multicolored feathers. When I shifted my eyes away from their bodies, Pop laughed and told me it was okay to look. Mike's quarter felt warm and dirty in my shorts pocket. I was tempted to pitch it into a gutter. Omari lagged behind me, walking with one foot on the sidewalk and the other in the street. I was melting in my cap, and here he was with that mask. He'd been wearing it since Mike began coming around. All of a sudden, Ma had started acting girlish, humiliating herself. She even smiled in a ridiculous way, like she did in her pictures from high school. You could see all her teeth, and held like a tiny butt between them, the bright red tip of her tongue. She crossed and uncrossed her legs with extreme awareness of herself. Awareness that Mike enjoyed looking at her, delighted that he did, as if she were some other woman and not our mother. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> uh, so I, I really loved... I really loved this book, and I mean, you just completely won me over. I, I mean, there's so many worlds in here, and there's so many characters, and they're all men, and they're all, I mean, they're not all men, but most of the narrators are men, and they're mostly straight men, and, you know, I'm, I'm a tough audience for that, for that kind of book, and you won me over, and I, and it's because of your treatment of masculinity. And so I, I just wanted you to kind of talk about masculinity, mm -hmm. talk about why, why you've chose to kind of orient the book around masculinity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think... <clears throat> thanks for that question. Um, I, I think uh, the idea of masculinity must have been deep in my psyche because I didn't initially set out to write stories about masculinity. Mm. Um, and it was only as they began to accumulate that I saw what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, if I had to speculate why um, I was writing these stories, you know, somewhat unintentionally um, on this theme, I think it's because every, ever since I was a boy, I've sort of felt ill at ease with the expectation, the dominant expectations of masculinity. Um, one day they would be like clothes that fit pretty well. Mm -hmm. And the next day they would be like shorts that were too tight or a shirt that was too baggy. Um, kind of this ill-fitting clothing. Um, and, you know, I think this is something that, that probably a lot of people can identify with where, you know, there, there are these prevailing notions about what it means to inhabit your gender identity. And in some ways you may fit them, in a lot of ways you may not. Um, and kind of negotiating that, um, I think it's pretty fascinating. So I think, I think uh, wrestling with masculinity has kind of been just a part of my everyday life since I was very young. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in, in the story that you just read, uh, Juve, which is one of my it's one of my favorite stories in, in this collection. I, I wish you could have read the whole thing because yeah. the description of the festival itself is incredible and, and it's so joyous and it's so alive um, and it's also quite terrifying at the same time. Mm. And one of the reasons that it's terrifying is because he has this little, he has his little brother with him and his brother is kind of getting lost in, in the crowd. Um, and a lot of these stories deal with brotherhood, um, 
in, in, in a literal sense, right, brothers and also brotherhood in, in a kind of more metaphorical, more metaphorical yes. sense, right? Yeah. And something about masculinity is that it's, it's kind of like it's a zero-sum game, right? That you, that you kind of prove your masculinity at the expense of somebody else, mm-hmm. right? That you prove your dominance by making somebody else feel that's weak. Right. And, and that's something that happened in the story again and again and again. Um, so maybe just talk about brotherhood for a little bit, yeah? Yeah. Um... I think a lot about brotherhood. I have a younger brother, um, and I'm several years older than he is. So I sort of went from being firmly established to being an only child to all of a sudden having another person. Um, And wrestling with that, what it means for for this other boy to all of a sudden show up, um, and he's looking at you, he's challenging you, um, and what do you do? You know, especially when you're very young. So I think about brotherhood a lot because of my relationship with him. Um, I also think about brotherhood a lot in that more uh, casual, metaphorical sense that that you mentioned. Um, Friendship. Um, The people who who you spend your time with, who aren't family. Um, The other boys or men who who shape your sense of of who you are. Um, And I think... think, you know, just just thinking about masculinity and thinking about male friendship is, is something that's really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, seeing other people's lives, seeing how they inhabit masculinity, and measuring it against the way that you do it, and deciding: Am I doing this the right way? Do I want to be more like you? Should you be more like me? And sometimes that can cause conflict, right? In that zero-sum game sense. Um, but but brotherhood is really fascinating to me. Um, the ways in which you're so intimate. Um, and, you know, I do think this is a book about masculinity, but I think it's certainly a book about intimacy. Um, and often intimacy between men, between brothers, between friends. Um, so what do you do in that space of intimacy where, you know, ideally you would love to just love and embrace each other, but sometimes you're just in that space fighting, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so intimacy is this, as this kind of charged space, too. It's very interesting to me. Yeah, and I think that the intimacy kind of between men feels especially charged and especially dangerous around touch, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the most kind of fantastic moments in this book are when one man touches another, mm-hmm. and it is, sometimes it's awful, it's yeah. terrible, <laughs> it's the worst kind of touch. Sometimes it's... It just it's it's just kind of nerve wracking. Yeah. Sometimes it's quite comforting. Yeah. Um, is this something you thought a lot about about when men touch each other and how loaded that is? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when, when I was thinking about you know just that kind of ill-fitting clothing sense of masculinity, especially as a very young person, um, one thing that you know I'm sure a lot of people can, a lot of the males in the room can identify with is you weren't supposed to touch. You know, you're not supposed to touch each other. And, you know, being in elementary school or middle school, high school, God, no. It was just you were not supposed to touch each other. And, in, and if you did touch, you know, all of a sudden your entire being was called into question. Um, so having lived that version of masculinity very early on, and then later on in life having friendships with men where people are very easy about touching each other, you know, a hand on the shoulder, a hug, even a kiss, you know, all of that. Um, I think it's just seeing that spectrum, you know, seeing that, that evolution in, in male friendship is very interesting to me. Um, and the ways in which a touch can be the most horrible thing in the world, and on the other hand, it can be the most wonderful and most necessary thing in the world. Mm-hmm. And I wanted the, the collection to sort of um, touch on that spectrum of, of male touch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Touching on touch. Yeah. Touching on touch. Um, so another, another kind of thing that I noticed throughout the book was stepfathers or the surrogate father mm-hmm. or the missing father mm-hmm. and, and, and the kind of the men who step in to, to take that place. And, yeah. and, and sometimes it works out quite well, yeah. but oftentimes it doesn't. There's yeah. a lot of bitterness there. Yeah. I wonder where that, where that came from, why, why there's so many stepfathers and, and surrogate fathers in here. Yeah. Um, Fatherhood is, like brotherhood, fatherhood is something that I've, I've thought a lot about. And I think when I was very young, I had a sense that it was shameful not to have a father or not to have a biological father in the picture. 
um, and that a surrogate father or a stepfather, any other kind of father, um, was was just not the same thing, you know. Um, but you know, of course, you grow and evolve, and and your sense of what the nuclear family is is just one kind of family, right? Um, you don't have to have um, this picture that's given, you know, the biological mother, the biological father. It doesn't have to look like that. Um, so I, I think I think about a lot about the disappearance of fathers. Um, I'm, I was thinking a lot about the various forms that families could take um, and honoring that. You know, respecting that as as a form of family. Um, so, you know, in this story, Mike is sort of a potential replacement father, I guess. And the narrator, is, as you could tell, is not fond of him at all. Um, but the mother loves him, right? And there's something about the the, the mother's uh, need for him, desire for him, in her life that's legitimate and that should be taken into account. So even though the narrator's not fond of this guy, and he's sort of silly, he's got his bright pink wine and all that kind of stuff, um, he's got all the lines, but, but there's, you can tell that, that the mother is so full of life when he's around, right? Um, so I wanted to honor that character too and not make him a figure of fun. Um, so yeah, stepfathers, you're right, sometimes it doesn't work out, but sometimes it does, and I, I, wanted, it, I wanted to show both possibilities mm -hmm. okay I'm gonna switch I'm gonna switch a little bit and one of the things that one of the things that I love 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 about the book is that you talk about race in a way that is not for white people it's 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 you somehow managed to avoid the white gaze or writing for the white gaze mm -hmm. I'm so in, I was just so impressed by that. I was so deeply immersed in these stories and in these characters, and I felt like I could just kind of relax because mm -hmm. I was like, "Oh, it's not, it's not doing this performance." Yeah. Um, how did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> how do I, like, teach me. I want to know. Oh gosh, um, I don't know. I don't know. I think <laughs> I wish I could give you a. No, here's the list. Here's what you do. Um, I don't have a list. I, I think. Uh, Really what was important to me in thinking about uh, the perspective of the book, Avoiding the White Gaze, was sort of imagining a reader like me, mm -hmm. a reader like my mother, or imagining a space where I'm with family members or, or trusted friends, and we're telling each other stories, right? Um, that kind of space where you don't have to worry about that stuff out there, you know? Um, so I kind of wanted to write the stories in a mode that, that replicated that feeling of um, relaxing with your family, with your cousin, with your auntie, um, and, and talking as family, you know, there's no need for code switching, there's no need to, to worry, you know, what people out there might say, but it's just writing it in a way um, that feels true to me. Um, I imagined the people I grew up with, you know, in Brooklyn and the Bronx. Um, and that's, that's, what this, that's what this collection is about. Um, I didn't, you know, Toni Morrison has that great thing about the universal and the particular. Right, that I've, as I've always kept with me, where she says, you know, um, William Faulkner wrote supposedly regional literature, but it's considered universal, right? And how did he reach the universal? Well, he wrote what he knew. And she says, when I imagine my characters, when I imagine my readers, those people, for me, people are black people. You know? So just keeping that, that kind of mindset with me was, was important as I was writing the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, the book seems like it's very much a, a kind of um, a love song to New York. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I love New York. And, and, I, and, and you describe New York kind of just so brilliantly and so wonderfully. And then at the, at the very last story, it's more contemporary Brooklyn, and it's, and it's, and it's tense. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was this bar called Tip Top. Do you know the bar Tip Top? The Tip Top, yeah. yeah. That's, that's what this Is that what that is? I on. knew it. Yeah. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, yeah, it's just like, yeah. I used to live around the corner from oh, there. And, yeah. and it was, yeah, it was just this crazy, complicated, yes. problematic space. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, 
What do you think about New York now? You're, you're, you live in L.A. now, right? I do live in L.A. now, yeah, as of uh, September. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, it's interesting. I lived in New York most of my life, decades of my life there, and left only five years ago. Um, so my relationship to the city has changed quite a bit. Um, instead of just sort of slowly living through the changes every day. I go back for these visits. I go to visit my mom. I go to visit my friends. And I just see the new co-op that's up or, you know, the ways that the new, you know, all the mom and pop places are gone. And, you know, there's, it's just all this uh, corporatization of the city and gentrification of the city. Um, so, you know, in this collection, which, which you know, is at various points in time, um, I wanted to honor the old New York and sprinkle in signs of a changing New York. Um, and then in that last story, really kind of go to, you know, what New York is, is, is like um, nowadays. So I, I, I don't know. I, I feel pretty ill at ease when I go back, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so much has changed. Uh, the color of the city is, is changing in ways that are very disturbing. Um, so I, I wanted to I wanted to write into that tension. I wanted to write into that change, and that's why the collection ends with the tip top bar, <laughs> a version of the tip top bar. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna go to audience questions soon, but I want you to read this one passage, which I love. Um, it's just a paragraph long, and it's about it's it's from the perspective of a character called Wolf, and it's kind of about navigating race and yeah okay <clears throat> what he felt sure of was the fact that he still loved being called wolf in winter garden down in florida where he lived now childless and unmarried he was plain old wilford jones people there addressed him as will a solid name for a solid prosperous man He'd been popular as a boy because of his brashness, the unpredictable ways he performed, being black and male. But that was before things changed between him and his father. His transformation became more pronounced when he went off to college, and then again when he moved to Florida. As he surrounded himself with increasing numbers of white people, people unlike those he'd grown up with in Mott Haven, his performance was, by turns, more timid and more exaggerated. He began to emphasize a more blatantly sexual approach to women, a consciously narrowed intelligence, and an inclination to keep any unpopular opinions to himself. He was conspicuous, but never threatening, and for this he'd been rewarded. Wolf typically had been less cognizant of his acting than of being rewarded. And as the benefits became more substantial, more sex, more powerful connections, increasingly better jobs, followed by the assurance of a fairly lucrative career, his practiced ignorance won out. Soon he was barely aware that he was acting at all. What he perceived instead was an irritation just beneath the skin, one he could claw at, but never relieve. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think you, I think you just say it all right there. You say it all about about this this desire to perform race and ethnicity, to perform your sexuality, to perform your gender, and the ways in which you're rewarded for doing it, in in ways that make other people feel comfortable or or, or satisfy some weird desire that other people have. Yeah. Did you have any of that as the book went into publishing? Did you run into any of the kind of publishing world wanting you to make the book something else? Hmm. You know, I have to say that that uh, my publisher, Grey Wolf, has, has been pretty good about that. Um, and I don't know if it's because it's a smaller independent house um, or what. Maybe if I had had a corporate publisher, it would have been a different story. But I didn't get much of that, actually. Um, so, and I'm, I'm grateful not to have to fight that battle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do people in the audience have want to ask questions? 
Oh, what was the most difficult story for me to write? Um, there are two. Um, the story I just read from, um, which is called Wolf and Rhonda, was challenging because it's the only story in the book that has a, a point of view from a female character. The story goes back and forth between the wolf character and the Rhonda character. So um, it was challenging. It was challenging to, to, to write from her perspective. And as I was working on drafts of the story, you know, I got called out a few times in, in writing workshops for, for not getting it quite right, um, which I appreciated. Um, but yeah, that was difficult, you know. Um, someone says that uh, the baseline for male writers writing female characters is you suck, <laughs> which <laughs> is probably right. Um, so that was difficult. And then the other more difficult story, which is difficult for a different reason, for an emotional reason, was um, Everything the Mouth Eats, which is the longest story in the collection. And I think that one was difficult because it, it touched on a lot of things that I not directly, but sort of obliquely lived, you know? So that story's a lot about relationship with a brother. Um, so that one was the most emotionally difficult story to write. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm timing that. Um, when, you're, when you're putting this collection together, Oh, <laughs> well, you had a reason for doing that. Um, and then I, and then I was, I had this weird guilt feeling while I was reading it, like maybe I shouldn't, maybe I was like cheating. Um, so yeah. I'm just curious how, how you see the book in terms of that. Yeah, so the, the, if you didn't hear, the question is about how I intend the stories to be read. Do I want them to be read um, in chronological order, or is it okay if people skip around? Um, skipping around is fine. It's fine that you read the third story first. Um, but I, I will say this, you know, I'm not gonna go into a frenzy because someone's reading out of order, but I, I have to say that one of the most interesting parts of editing this book was working on the story order. Um, and we went through various options of, of how to order the stories. At first it was gonna be a strict chronological age of the protagonist, and that didn't quite work. Um, there is sort of an arc of immaturity to maturity in the book, sort of. But the order we settled on, I think, gives the book a shape. And I think if you read the stories in order, you'd have a different and I think a more rich experience of the book than if you just read it randomly, read the stories randomly. So now it's not okay to skip around. <laughs> <laughs> I clearly <don't> know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Let me think about that for a second. Um, in terms of race, I'll, I'll touch on masculinity in a minute. In terms of race, you know, the the main players in this book are, are all African American. So the way that race is depicted in this book, it isn't so much about uh, writing directly into issues of oppression, for instance. Um, there's stuff on the margins, right? So um, mass incarceration is on the margins of this book. So you, you feel it there, but it's not about the stories that, that have that there aren't about mass incarceration, really. Um, <clears throat> gentrification is on the margins of the book, and more explicit in the last story, but still, it's, it's an element of the story, not the subject of the story. So I kind of wanted to, to be true to the fact that 
that these kinds of things are out there and that the kinds of characters I'm writing about will be dealing with these kinds of issues. But I intentionally kind of kind of put them out of the spotlight. But I want the reader to sort of feel those those pressures as you're, you're observing these people living their lives. Um, in terms of structure, that's interesting. What, can you say more about what you meant by that? Well, um, um, I was just wondering if you would approach a story um, without the usual hierarchies of, you know, um, a three-act structure in the story or certain conventions. Oh, yeah. Structures of convention. Yeah. If we get closer to... Um, yeah. 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 That's actually really pressing. Have you read? Have you read the book? Because no, it's one of the most interesting things that I think you do is that you. It does not. Every story does not reach towards its epiphany. I mean, the places that you end these stories always threw me. I was always just like, what? We're, <laughs> we're ending here in a, in a great way. But yeah, I think I think that that's yeah. Anyway, so you say more. Yeah, I think um, but one, one, thing, one thing you'll notice about the stories in this collection, maybe compared to some other collections, is that they're, they're pretty long. The stories are pretty long. They each are approaching um, 25 to 30, sometimes more than 30 pages, which, you know, we're usually getting like 15, 12 pages, something like that. And the reason I bring up story length is because I think, for me, creatively, writing into a, lo- a longer space enables me to do interesting things with structure. So I don't feel wedded to the three-act structure or to action, backstory, you know, that kind of structure. Um, I can sort of find my own structure, right, within this larger canvas that I provided for myself. So it's, it's, that page limit is a page limit that I feel comfortable with, and it enables me to, to sort of find the correct shape for each story and not, like, use these received forms, if that makes sense. Thanks for that. Um, I love short stories, and I absolutely don't see them as a stepping stone to the novel. Um, so I, I do want to continue. I am continuing to write short stories very painfully, slowly. Um, but I, I do want to write longer work, too. Um, the longer piece I have in mind... So here's a, so I, I write longer stories, and I think I'm going to write a really short novel. Um, <laughs> so I don't want to say too much about what they're about, because they're at that stage where they're just kind of deformed and ugly and I don't want to scare anybody out of the store Um, but I am working on both new stories and what I think is a very short novel (laughs) you had a question over there Uh, okay so I'll ask a question Um, a lot happens in the stories um, around men's entitlement to women's bodies. Mm. Uh, and I think that, I mean, there's one story in here where there's a man walking down the street and he's a kind of middle-aged black man who works at a school and he's walking by a bunch of school children and this, I'm, I'm just going to give away a little bit, this white lady mistakenly thinks that he's taking pictures of these kids and, and basically like, screams at him that he's a pervert on the street. And it's a very complicated moment because he's not guilty of, of that, but it is a very but, but he is guilty of a certain kind of sense of entitlement. Mm-hmm. And and I find that in a lot of the stories that that one of the things that's happening is is you're talking about men's sense of entitlement to women's bodies. Yeah. Yes. I don't know if there's a question. <laughs> I don't know if there's a question there. <laughs> I think you handle it really deftly. Yeah. Um, do you think? Do you think that it's what doesn't happen in the book is I don't see a lot of men calling other calling each other out on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think 
you know, we were talking earlier about the prevailing forms of masculinity, you know, and when you, when you think about how you're raised and the dominant modes of heterosexual masculinity, part of that is you're entitled mm-hmm. um, to, to the bodies of women or girls. Um, and, you know, that's, that's something that I think, you know, young people have to wrestle with. That, that's the idea. Um, and hopefully that will start to change, or maybe it's changing. But I, I remember that. I remember the sense of, like, feeling like if you go to a party, you know, if you go out to the club, the expectation is, you know, you're going to have access to women, mm-hmm. right? And often the response that I would see to a lack of access to women in their bodies was frustration, anger, mm-hmm. you know, as if you've been deprived of something you deserve. Um, so I did want to illustrate that. Um, you're right that I don't have anyone calling that out specifically. I'm not saying you should have. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just saying, do you think that that's the problem? Do you think that might be part of the problem? Of, oh, yeah. Of, of absolutely. What's going on with masculinity yes. right now? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I'm not like, I don't think you should have put that in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so yes, during the during the editorial process, one story was pulled and another story was added. Um, the story that was added was everything the mouth eats, which was the first story for this guy. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, and the story that was pulled was pulled for a couple of reasons. Um, one was I think it had too many elements that were similar to another story in the collection. So it was, um, Justin was just talking about the, the guy who was accused of taking pictures of, of the children. Um, so this story was also kind of about a guy misbehaving with a camera in probably worse ways. Um, and so, so that didn't work. The stories felt too close together. Um, that's probably the main reason why we pulled it. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, and that was a story that I took a lot of risks on. I kind of wanted to write into a very unlikable character, I would say, um, in a lot of ways. Um, and try to find the, the nuance in this character, which is really challenging. Um, but I think the energy of that story kind of Hold the collection in the wrong in the wrong way. Um, the rest of the stories feel more balanced in their treatment of these sort of flawed human beings, um, and that one just kind of went maybe a little too beyond, you know. Um, but yeah, so we pulled that one and we added in what became the longest story in the collection. Yeah. Um, could you just talk a little bit about sort of the biographical way this book came into being, sort of how long it took to gestate? writers along the way who you worked with that might have influenced you. Mm-hmm. Sort of stuff like that. Maybe the Ambrosia knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to grad school with that guy. Uh, <laughs> um, so... <clears throat> The oldest story in the collection, the first draft of that story was written around 2011, 2012. Um, and the first draft of the newest story in the collection was written in 2015. Um, so over the course of those three, four years, um, I, wrote and re- I wrote or revised every single story in this collection while living in Iowa City which is strange, uh, because the book is all about New York. Um, so, so that was one thing that I had to, to manage, uh, sort of harnessing the energy of New York and being able to depict it in a way that was rich and convincing while living apart from, from that place. Um, and I was worried that that would be really, really challenging. But actually, it, it was probably for the best. Um, you know, a lot of you are probably familiar with this idea that you get perspective on a place once you've left it. And I found that to be really true while I was um, working on these stories. Um, But you were asking who I worked with. Um, So as I worked on these stories, uh, in my MFA program, I worked with writers like Marilyn Robinson, um, Charles D'Ambrosio, Sam Chang, Ethan Kanan, um, T. Geronimo Johnson. Um, you didn't take Ayana? 
Diana wasn't there while uh, I was there. She taught as a visiting professor right before I got there, and she was hired as permanent faculty right after I left. Sorry, this is inside baseball. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I didn't get a chance okay, to keep going with Diana. <laughs> yeah. How's it? How is it having the book out in the world? How is, how is it? It's weird. It's, re- <laughs> it's no, it's really weird. Um, there's there's kind of this sense of I mean, it's exciting, of course. I mean, it's, it's my first book. There's, this will never happen again. Um, so I'm thrilled. I'm excited. Um, it's strange to know that people are going to read this. Um, so that's odd. And there's also this sense of you know, kind of balancing the excitement. I'm also like, wait, no, that's mine. Give it back to me. You know, you can't have it. Um, but it's exciting. Are you reading the reviews? I mean, they've, they've been incredible. So Yeah, so, so far I'm reading them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that may change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How, does it, how does it feel to read these? Re- I mean, they've been incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, it's... it's I feel about the reviews the way that I feel about the response I've gotten from booksellers, Mm -hmm. actually, which is that these are committed, enthusiastic readers, first of all. You know, so to have people who have, in many ways, devoted their lives to books, you know, whether it's their their job in a bookstore, whether you write for a a website or a newspaper or a magazine, um, to have people who love literature um, so far, responding so enthusiastically to my book has been fantastic. I mean, there's, there's nothing like the gift of, of an enthusiastic, smart, sensitive reader. And so far, there have been lots of those. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any other questions? Great, so maybe... Oh, one more. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, revision. Oh, boy. Um, Well, first I'll say something just about how I even get the first draft out. Um, I kind of write in the dark a little bit. Um, I wish I could be one of those writers like Edward P. Jones who just, like, thinks about the whole story in his head and gets the whole thing and then writes it. Um, I'm not like that. So I start with, like, a very tiny anchor for a story, Um, whether that's a memory or um, a snippet of a character, some dialogue, an image, a place, a tip-top bar in Brooklyn. Um, And then from there, I just kind of ask a lot of questions, and I I write based on those questions. Um, I don't like to see the ending. This is a D'Ambrosioism. I don't like to see the ending until I'm pretty close to the ending, Um, which is not the way everyone works, but for me, I feel like if I'm surprised by the ending, maybe the reader will be surprised by the ending, too. You know, that may not work, but it's, it's the way I work. Um, but in terms of revision, you know, revision is when I start thinking really intentionally about craft. You know, thinking about the shape of a scene, or thinking about um, the energy and dialogue, or thinking about... Is the story starting in the right place? Is it ending in the right place? Do the beginning and ending of the story kind of talk to each other? Those kinds of questions I, I reserve for the revision process. But as I'm writing a first draft, I'm just kind of like, you know, stumbling around. Yeah. Well, it's, it is such a terrific collection of stories and I, I mean just run to the register and, and <laughs> buy many copies um, it really it's, it's really is I mean just congratulations it's fantastic thanks Justin yeah. <laughs> you've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.